Today we'll have our third, third message in our series on the book of Deuteronomy. We'll be covering chapters uh, 2 and 3. And in this part of Deuteronomy, Moses is still giving the history of God's relationship with Israel, and he does so today. And primarily, Moses is, is concerned with a specific part of God's history that is under the heading, These 40 years. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 7, and other places in chapters 2 and 3. These 40 years, God's history with his people during their time of wilderness wanderings. Reviews have become a part of commerce in our days. I don't know about you, but before I purchase a product before I think about going to a new restaurant. If I'm going out of town and I want to make reservations at a hotel, I get online and I read reviews, let me tell you. I've actually written some reviews on places that I've been. And what type of review am I looking for? What type of review do you want to find about the product? the restaurant, the hotel that you might uh, want to visit or that product you might want to buy. You want a five-star review. That's what I look for. I want to be assured that that product is dependable. I want to be sure that that restaurant has good food and good service, and I want to make sure that hotel is a good value to me. So I look for five-star reviews. Moses gives not a five-star review, but a five-star-plus review. The ultimate, best, over-the-top review. And he gives us this review of God's trustworthiness and his holiness during these 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And what might Moses' purpose be in chapters 2 and 3? He is, wanting to, he is wanting to compel, to persuade that new generation that God is trustworthy and that God is holy. And therefore, as you go into that land to possess it, you trust God and you obey God. Trust and obey. It's what God is seeking to emphasize in the lives of that new generation. And he tells us that God's record, his history of being trustworthy and holy, it is a five-star plus review. And so our outline today is rather simple. We'll be looking at this five-star review that Moses gives of God as he recounts the history of God's relationship with Israel these 40 years, and that God is trustworthy and God is holy. Let us pray. Father, we need to be reminded that you are trustworthy, that you are holy. We've already sung of both your trustworthiness and your holiness, your faithfulness, and the demand that you placed upon us to trust and obey. And I pray that as we work through this passage of Scripture, that that might be upon our minds, that that might be impressed upon our hearts, and that we would see indeed that you are trustworthy, that you are holy, 
and it compels us to more and more trust you and obey you. Not that you have to prove your faithfulness, but as we trust you and you're faithful and as we obey, you are glorified over and over again in our lives. And you're proven in that we are, we experience your truthfulness and holiness. And that spurs us on to even more trust and obedience. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy, we'll not read all of chapters 2 and 3, but we'll just simply read one verse of chapter 2 and then several verses in chapter 3. So we'll begin by reading chapter 2, verse 7. And then we will read chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now God's word for God's people. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through the great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Chapter 3, verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying... O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your, and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of his people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remain in the valley opposite Beth Peor. The word of the Lord is eternal and stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. But we need to remember this. Our souls will not be revived by the word of God, lest the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, work and apply it to our hearts. And so may God the Holy Spirit do that very work this day as we come before the Word of God as an act of faith. Well, we'll begin by looking first at at this promise of God's uh, trustworthiness, that indeed He is uh, trustworthy, that we can count on Him. First, these 40 years, Moses recounts in his review God has been utterly trustworthy God has a history with me and he also has a history with you that the history for me is represented by 61 years nine months and 15 days if I get through the rest of this day and hopefully I can survive the picnic and that will be true I can recount many ways that I have experienced God's trustworthiness in my life. And so can you. God has a history with you as well. Well, Moses recounts God's trustworthiness 
over these 40 years in the life of Israel. As I've already said, they represent the 40 years of wilderness wanderings that were imposed upon that original, that Horeb, that Mount Sinai generation. Remember from last week, as we looked at chapter 1, verses 19 through 46, that God called the Israelites to go in and take possession of the land, and yet they rebelled in unbelief, they sinned, and God imposed this 40 years of wilderness wandering. So God proved trustworthy in keeping his word of judgment. Last uh, week we read from Deuteronomy chapter 1, 35, 37, 38, and 40. Not one of these men of this evil generation, that is the Horeb generation, that original generation at Sinai, shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Then verse 37, except Caleb, verse 38, Joshua shall enter, verse 40. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. God is trustworthy. He keeps his word of judgment. God is also trustworthy, and he proved trustworthy as he kept his word of promise. Deuteronomy 1.39, and as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. God is trustworthy in keeping his promises. God proved trustworthy these 40 years in the wilderness. And chapter 2, verse 7 shows us three ways that God proved to be trustworthy. So look to chapter 2, verse 7. He blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. That is, God was, he not only blessed your work, but he was also watchful over you. He guided you. He ordained your footsteps. He cared for you. And God has been with you. You lack nothing. God had already had a record of providing food and water for Israel, and that record continued these 40 years. In Exodus 16 and 17 and Deuteronomy 11, God's provision of food and water. So this is how Moses gives just a a summary review of God's trustworthiness these 40 years. But he also gives three examples. And the first example of God's trustworthiness over these 40 years is that they passed through three nations without having to fight, which, by the way, should surprise all of us because it seemed like Israel was always fighting somebody. They journeyed through, in chapter 2 and verse 4, the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, Jacob's twin brother Esau and his descendants were the nation of Edom. And then the two other nations mentioned, Moab and Ammon. These are the nations that are descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. But something interesting is mentioned 
with regards to Moab and Ammon. That Moses specifically cites the native peoples of these lands, the Anakim and the Raphaim. The Anakim were the people, as you recall, that when the 12 spies, when they were stationed at Kadesh, Barnea, just south of the Promised Land, and 12 spies were sent in, remember they came back with a report, they were fearful of the people, the Anakim that lived in Canaan. And that was part of their rationale for saying, we must not go in, we will be destroyed. And here God, these 40 years, safely takes the entire Israelite nation through Moab and Ammon, where the Anakim and the Raphaim live, these warlike people, safely, without even having to fight. God's trustworthiness proven, communicating to the new generation they had absolutely nothing to fear. God's five-star plus review attested to the fact that God had blessed them even in the land of the Anakim, that God was watchful over them. They didn't even have to fight, and that God supplied everything that they need as they journey through these three nations. God is trustworthy. The second example has to do with two kings being defeated. So on the one hand, they didn't have to fight. On the other hand, they did fight. We notice in, in chapters 2 and 3 that Sion, king of Heshbon, and Ah, king of Bashan, were these two kings and these two nations that were both defeated by Israel. Now remember from last week, God said, I will be with you. I will fight for you. You go in and take the land and the people disobeyed. But here we see an example of the people actually obeying God, going to battle, experiencing the reality that God will fight for them, and they had victory over the nations of Heshbon and Bashan. But is this just merely two victories that we could, where Israel could put a notch on their belts? No, it's much more than that. It's really beautiful. It's really incredible. It's really encouraging. And here's the picture I want to paint for you. Before the nation of Israel even set one foot in the Jordan River to cross over, a partial fulfillment of the inheritance of land had already been given to the nation. You understand? Even before they crossed the Jordan, God proved trustworthy. These lands, Heshbon and Bashan, are actually a partial fulfillment of God's promise of land, this inheritance of land. If you look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 22, you will find that these, these lands that were east of the Jordan River were the inheritance of two and a half tribes, the tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you can look at that in Numbers 32, 33 through 34. You can look at that in Joshua 12 that also references these two and a half tribes. These, they're called the Transjordan tribes, 
settling in their inheritance. God providing this partial fulfillment of the promise of land even before the nation crossed the Jordan River. A five-star plus review assuring the new generation God's already begun the fulfillment of his promise of land. He's already blessed you with this inheritance, at least a partial portion of it. That God has been watchful over you as you fought against these two nations, as you were victorious over these two nations, and God has supplied every need that you have. God's trustworthiness in their journey through three nations without fighting, God's trustworthiness in their defeat of two kings and possession of two lands as a partial fulfillment of his promise. And the third example of God's trustworthiness is the fact that God would provide a successor to Moses. Look at chapter 3, verse 28. Moses would eventually die atop the mountain, and God said, go to atop Mount Pisgah and, and look over and he would die but yet God commanded Moses before he actually went up to the mountain to charge Joshua that is to commission Joshua as the new leader of this new generation the, the baton of leadership was passed from Moses to Joshua now Moses was God's man to bring the people from bondage in Egypt to the east bank of the Jordan River. And now Joshua is God's man to carry the nation across the Jordan River to have possession of the land. A five-star review assuring this generation that God has blessed them with leadership in the past. He is blessing them with a new leader for the future. A five-star review that God has been watchful over Moses and he will be watchful over Joshua as he leads the nation. You all know how important leadership is. A five-star review, God has been trustworthy in supplying all of your needs and he will supply all of your needs in Canaan we sang the hymn tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just before the sermon the refrain Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I proved him or and or how do we prove him or and or when we trust God is faithful and his trustworthiness is realized, is visualized in our lives. Over and over again, he is faithful, or and or. And the passage that Dan read this morning from 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This five-star review plus of God's trustworthiness. And then secondly, these 40 years, Moses gives this five-star plus review of God's holiness. 
this morning I was reading in Table Talk. Let me just say that we received five copies of Table Talk, the Ligonier Ministry Daily Devotional here at church, and they're placed on a rack there in the foyer, first come, first serve, so five of you can have a free copy of Table Talk. It's a great devotional. That's just a commercial. Commercial's over. Back to the sermon. I was reading in my Table Talk this morning, by the way, that I paid for, because I wanted you to have my copy here. I was reading in my Table Talk this morning. On the weekends, they have an article. They don't go through a passage, you know, a section of Scripture. This article, I hope, have any, any, well, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I suspect some of you read this article this morning, The Faithful. Um, that's a joke. You can laugh. Come on. Christian amnesia. That was the title of the article. <laughs> and, and the writer's point was to say we can so easily just be focused on the horizontal aspects of life. Relationships, money, just getting through the day. And actually forget about the vertical. Forget about God. One and, and especially when it comes to remembering that God is holy. I think, you know, we come to church, and what should probably be the, the top truth or the top thing in our minds as we come to church, I would suggest God is holy. That we come before him and worship reverently and in awe because he's awesome. He is awful. He is holy. And so the writer said this, I've forgotten God and I've let my busy and struggling life push him to the periphery. Moses forgot God and he let the people's quarreling and complaining <laughs> push God to the periphery. He had a lapse, and it wasn't a senior moment. He forgot about God's holiness. So let me explain this to you a little bit further. In the early stages of Israel's journey from Egypt to the east bank of the Jordan, we find a rock-water event. Between crossing through the Red Sea and before getting to Sinai, there was a rock-water event. And toward the latter stages of Israel's journey, in fact, the, in the, the period of these 40 years, toward the end of their journey, before they reached the east bank of the Jordan River, there was another rock water event. Israel's journey from the Red Sea to the bank of the Jordan River are bracketed by two rock water events. The people complained at Rephidim, the first rock water event, en route from the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. And God met the people's need for water in Exodus chapter 17. He commanded Moses, take that staff that you used to raise up so that the Red Sea would part. You take that staff and the rock on which God said, I am standing, God's standing on a rock. And God says to Moses, you take that staff and you strike the rock 
and water will come forth. And it did. Water not only came forth, it gushed forth, and the people drank, and their thirst was quenched. Now, toward the end of Israel's journey, as they're approaching the Jordan River, another rock water event, a similar event, during these 40 years at Meribah, the people quarreled and complained yet again. They needed water. And so Moses got Aaron. They went into the tent of meeting to inquire of the Lord. Numbers 20, verses 8 and 9. Take the staff. This is the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron. Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and get this, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses gathered, they left the tent of meeting, Moses gathered the people, and this is how Moses addressed them. You rebels! I can just imagine Moses had it up to his eyeballs with the people's pettiness, quarreling, and complaining. For the last probably 41 or so years, Moses, I'm just putting myself in Moses' sandals, just thinking these people are impossible. When they have water, they complain that it's too much. When they have manna, they complain that it's, it's the same old, same old. They just complain and they quarrel. And so he said, you rebels. And what did he do? He lifted up that staff. Yeah, that staff that he lifted up to part the Red Sea, that staff that God had said in the first water rock event, strike the rock, he lifted up that staff and he struck the rock just didn't strike the rock but he struck it twice and guess what water gushed out abundantly the text says so how did Moses sin did you pick it up Moses said or God said to Moses tell the rock but Moses took his staff and struck the rock. Now I'm presuming here, but in Exodus, the first water rock event, God was standing upon the rock, and I would assume the same in the second water rock event. Moses struck the rock. I don't think it takes too much imagination for us to know why Moses struck the rock, because I think he was angry. He was upset. And you know what? I don't blame him. Here's God's response. Numbers 20, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them judgment on Moses. He would not 
be able to go into the promised land. His leadership of the people would come to an end in judgment. And Moses gives a little commentary in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 13. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. And through them he showed himself holy. God showed himself holy in providing water. And God showed himself holy in disciplining Moses for unbelief and disobedience. Moses called the people rebels, and they were no doubt about that. But Moses' actions, his unbelief, his disobedience clearly shows that he was a rebel too. Moses pushed God to the periphery. He was fixated on the people and their quarreling and their complaining. He was fixated on the horizontal issues of life. He had pushed the vertical to the periphery. He had forgotten that God is holy. He had forgotten that God demands full devotion. He had forgotten that God demands obedience. He had forgotten that God demands absolute submission to his word, to his commands. Moses pushed all of that aside because he was focused on the horizontal. I believe Moses' anger was primarily against God. That's what was in his heart, ultimately. The leader who was to model faith and obedience failed miserably. There are consequences to pushing God to the periphery. failing to submit, failing to believe, failing to obey. There are consequences. Moses suffered a severe consequence. If I were in Moses' shoes, I would be, you mean to tell me, for 40 Plus years I have been with these people leading them for the most part doing what you told me to do God and you're not going to let me have the blessing of taking them into promised land God is holy and his holiness will be upheld and not even a leader with a 40-plus year track record of leadership will tarnish God's holiness. God will not let sin go unaddressed. And that's what Moses experienced. But thankfully, grace is mixed in. Moses appealed to God's greatness and might and pleaded with him, let me go in, Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. The text tells us the Lord was angry toward Moses over, di over disobeying him at Meribah. And would not allow him to go in, but said, go atop Mount Pisgah and you can at least look over and see the land. And I believe that we see a combination of God's grace and justice here. 
where his holiness is upheld in this severe discipline of Moses, but there's grace there as well. Moses, you'll be the only, Joshua and Caleb will be able to go in, but you're the only one of that Horeb generation, except those two guys, who will at least be able to see them. Of course, minus the spies that, that went in. Moses gives a five-star-plus review of God's holiness. And this five-star-plus review of God's holiness should move us, should compel us to endeavor to trust and obey holy God. Now, in two weeks, when we get to chapter 4, we'll, we'll see Moses focusing on commanding the new generation to obey, just picking up with his own example of disobedience and, and encouraging them to obey. So we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But I want to ask you this question. Have, have we experienced Christian amnesia like Moses? By pushing God, in particular, by pushing God as holy to the periphery and living life on our own terms focused on the horizontal. I think that's a good question for us to contemplate with regards to what we've talked about here. We, we need this five-star-plus review of God's holiness to compel us to remember how utterly holy God is. And we see that in the severity of Moses' discipline. To compel us to submit to God to believe in God, to trust Him, and to obey Him. And we need Jesus. There's a really interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 where the Apostle Paul picks up on this water rock event, these two events in Israel's history, and speaks of Jesus being that rock. In rabbinical tradition, they believed that there was this rock, that <laughs> this actual rock that kind of followed Israel around through their wilderness wanderings. And I really don't think that's what Paul is referring to, though. That's just some tradition. What he's referring to is that that rock where the water gushes forth, that Jesus is the spiritual rock that provides for all of our needs, that he's the true provision of God for that gushing water that quenches every thirst, that gushing water that is living water that refreshes and that saves and that heals. And as we contemplate how often, and I would, I would just say this because I, if, it's, if it's true in my life, it's likely true in your life, that, that, I, that I think we often tend to push God as holy to the periphery because we're just so fixated on the horizontal. And we need Jesus to bring us back to see God as holy, that he's the center, that he's the most important, that that vertical relationship is the most important. We need Jesus to come and flood our hearts with that, that, that life-giving, life-forgiving water that he provides for all of our lack of submission to holy God, for all of our lack of trust in holy God, for all of our lack of obedience to the commands 
of holy God. We need Jesus to come and flood our hearts. We need to trust Jesus for forgiveness. We need to trust Jesus for the power to keep the vertical in the center and the most important, to not put God as holy to the periphery so that we wind up striking the rock when God has told us to speak to it. Well, there's a story that dates to 1932 that somewhere out in one of the, the desert places of Nevada in this, this desolate path where very few ever hiked there is, uh, there is an old well with a pump, you know, old-timey pump. And on the handle of that old-timey pump, there was a wire attached to a can, a, a, um, a baking powder can. And in that baking powder can, with it being hooked to the handle of, of this pump, there was a letter in it. I want to read the letter to you. This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it and it ought to last five years. But the washer dries out and the pump has got to be primed. Under the white rock I buried a bottle of water out of the sun and cork in up. There is enough water in it to prime the pump but not if you drink some first. Pour about one-fourth and let it soak to wet the leather. Then pour in the rest and then pump like crazy. And if you do, you'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. When you get watered up, Fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller. Signed, Desert Pete. There's a P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it and you'll get all you can hold. I think that's an example of trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we reflect upon these many years of our lives that we would see our need for such a five-star-plus review of your trustworthiness and holiness that we would ever flee to Jesus for all that we need to truly trust and obey that your trustworthiness, that your holiness would be proved, would be seen, would be demonstrated or and or in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.